What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Flip Flop Guy podcast. I'm Andy Mokel, and I'll be your host. Our goal is to have epic conversations with people from all walks of life. There are no talking points that are off the table. It's going to get wild. We hope our guests inspire and motivate you to walk with purpose as we trudge the road of human existence. Enjoy the show. That's painful. So, uh, yeah, I mean, he's... I don't think he knows the difference Mm -hmm. because he's never lived in a place where technology has been super accessible to him. Um, He definitely likes TV. You know, we let him watch some TV. But um, What a benefit for him to get to grow up out here, outdoors, not being reliant on technology. And like you said, he gets to go to school and he gets to learn technology at school and more technologically advanced things. But when he's at home... He's left to his imagination and he's left to learning and understanding things in a different way than just going home and playing PlayStation or Xbox or you right. know, whatever it may be. Well, and it's funny because we actually have gaming consoles. Mm-hmm. He got an Xbox One for Christmas. He has played it a handful of times. Uh-huh. Like, he won't play it unless we go with him to play it. And... Uh, he doesn't even know how to turn it on. Like it seems like he doesn't know what to do with it, you know. And then he'll he'll play it for five or ten minutes and lose interest. Like, I'm going outside, yeah. so he just doesn't have the interest in it, you know. Even when his friends, um, he's at a friend's house and they want to play video games, he's always suggesting to go outside, mm-hmm. um, and he'll make it awkward. Like you want to do what? And he'll just stare at people until they feel awkward about asking him about playing video games. Oh really? <laughs> Um, and, and go on his merry way outside to do whatever, jump on a trampoline or, you know, whatever, something outside. Yeah. The kid wants to be outside. He's always wanted to be outside, but he's also grown up in the outdoors. You know, his dad has taken him hunting since he was two years old. That's fantastic. Um, he passed Hunter's Ed at the age of eight. Now, as a Hunter's Education instructor and having worked with a lot of children, mm-hmm. you know, between eight and ten years old, what was that like for you guys as parents getting him into the Hunter's Education program and... Hoping right. that he did well in past. Well, so he took the class with me, yeah. so that helped, yeah. <laughs> right? Since I'm a hunter's ed instructor, um, I, I do a lot of private kids' classes mm-hmm. with kids that either have taken hunter's ed multiple times and have failed, um, or with kids whose parents feel like they have not been really welcomed into other hunter's ed classes, uh, which is really unfortunate and really shouldn't be happening, um, yeah. because there is no age minimum for hunter's ed, At you all. know? There's not. Uh, there's a minimum age to hunt big game. But there's which is not 12. a which is twelve, um, but there's not a minimum age to hunt in the state of California, and so and unless there becomes an age limit, hunters that has to be available and accessible by everyone. Yeah. So for for him uh, in particular, we made him study for about six months before we let him sign up to take the class. Mm-hmm. So he had a lot of prep work prior, right? Because his reading comprehension is really not at the age level of the test. Um, and so there was a lot of vocabulary learning and I would encourage anybody with a young child that, that, uh, wants to take Hunter's Ed to go over the vocabulary words that are in the Hunter's Ed booklet, um, prior to them signing up. Because once they understand the words, they usually know the concepts. It's just getting the vocabulary down because the vocabulary is advanced. Um, most kids shoot most adults don't know what the word topographic means you know yeah right so i think that that is where most kids get stuck um so i mean yeah his experience was okay i mean he missed a lot on the test but he still passed um 
and for me as an instructor what's important with young kids is that they they can show me they understand mm-hmm. um and that they're going to be safe with a firearm they're going to be they're, they're not going to shoot themselves or someone else right. they know what to do in the event of an accident um, or an emergency uh, you know those, those skills i think are what's most important for kids to to learn the conservation stuff is important but they're going to learn that by being Over with time. adults in the field yeah. you know um, yeah, so I think he was, he worked really hard. He did the online part first, and it took him about six weeks to do the online part because getting an eight-year-old to sit down and do it all at once <laughs> is near impossible. So we would have him do each, you know, unit, uh, a unit a weekend, and we would have him do it two or three times. Yeah. Um, and he would take the quizzes a couple of times. And working through that at his own pace really helped prepare him for the class. And that's also what I recommend to other parents who want to take my class, my kids' class, is that they do the online portion over time and they do it over and over until they um, feel confident enough with the material to do the follow-up class. Yeah. And it's worked every time. I have not had a kid fail my my class yet. Yeah. With with that, I should say, with using that methodology. (laughs) For sure. I, I think for me, one of the funniest things that I've seen is watching parents come in with their kids and they're all taking it together and the parents fail and the kids succeed. Well, that's good. Have you ever seen that happen? No, because I don't let parents in my class because uh, they distract. Yeah. You know, it's like going to a sports sporting event, right? And you got parents that coach on the sidelines instead of letting the coach coach the kids. Yeah. Um, and then the kids feel like they're under pressure. Um you know, I, I now if it's a public class, obviously that's a little different because they're open to anyone. But for the private kids classes, it's it's usually just kids only, um, and I don't let their parents sort of helicopter them during the class or during the test. And the kids do much better that way. Um, the the opposite experience in a public class where we have had you know parents and kids together, the kids do far worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I don't know if it's the pressure from their parents. It's sort of like Dance Mom, right? You, I don't know that horrible show, Dance Moms. Uh, those the parents are the moms are like insane, and they put so much pressure on their kids to to succeed that the kids crack under the pressure. Uh, and I sort of feel like Hunter's Ed is like that in a lot of ways because oftentimes it's the parent that wants the kid to hunt, not so much the kid that wants to hunt. Yeah. Um, at least not yet because they don't have the bug yet. Well, they don't know yet. Right. Yeah. Right, and so there's only they do been better a couple times when I've watched a parent and a kid, and like, because usually I'll have the dad hand the child the the hunter's ed certificate mm-hmm. instead of me handing it, and there's been circumstances where I've seen this the kid's eyes just like well up with tears and get so excited. You know, and, and you're passing along the tradition. That they passed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. When they pass. Yeah. So I, I do the same thing in my class. That's funny. So yeah. I usually give the parents the information and let, allow the parent to give it to their kid and I take a picture yeah. for them. Yeah. Yeah. I do the same thing. And, you know, I, I, what I just said is really only true for younger kids. The mm-hmm. older kids do fine with the parents in the class. Yeah. You know, but the younger kids, the, I think they're used to being at school all day without their parents. They're used to learning without their parents there in a classroom setting. And so that change of scenery of having your parent there, I do think is, it's an anxiety provoking for some kids. Absolutely. Right? Especially right. when parents are like, oh, come on, you know this, you know this, you know yeah. this. Well, maybe they do, but give them a minute. Yeah, <laughs> like, right. give them a minute. Yeah. Like, let them think through it. Um, 
you know, and the parents get so excited sometimes, and they want it so bad for their kid that, I mean, the kids just sometimes crack, and then they can't pass the test. Mm-hmm. So. Right. So, before we go further, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us who you are. You're, I mean, I know that I've read stories about you in the San Francisco Chronicle. Oh, that's a new one. Right? Yep. Uh, which was pretty amazing. I heard about you from probably my entire family and friends of my family after they had all read that article. Really? Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. It's good and reach. Yeah. It's good well, reach. Well, it's San Francisco, and right. rarely in the last 20 years do you see anything coming out of Marin or San Francisco, I, Marin IJ or San Francisco Chronicle about anything. Um shedding a positive light on hunting. I know mm-hmm. my grandfather used to write the hunting and fishing column for the Marin IJ. Mm-hmm. And that was always really positive. But we're mm-hmm. going back early 90s, late mm-hmm. 80s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, a really long time ago. So for all of us, it was it was very exciting to see that happen. So, yeah, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us who you are. Sure. Uh, my name is Jen Benedet, also known as Jen the Archer. Um, I am from San Diego. I'm an adult onset participant in hunting and fishing um, and came into the outdoors sort of by mistake. (laughs) Well, I mean, I got into hunting on purpose, um, but I I became sort of propelled into the public's eyes by mistake. Um, Back in 2013, I picked up a bow for the first time. Um, with the bucket list item to go hog hunting and uh, did not expect to become a hunter really I just had this bucket list item of like I want to do this thing Um, and loved it fell in love with it and the rest was history so but before you picked up a bow I'm going to sidetrack us really quick so before you picked up a bow for your very first time were you much of a meat eater no I was a vegetarian for most of my adult life um and what made yeah. you get into that? Like how, Being a vegetarian? Yeah, what made you choose that path? Right, so ironically enough, uh, I am often blamed for being a former animal rights person, which is not <laughs> true <laughs> um, at all. Uh, I was an FFA kid in high school, actually. I mean, I raised veal and pigs and lambs and chickens and all sorts of stuff. Um, but I became a vegetarian initially because I was doing international human rights work in countries without refrigeration and I kept getting sick from eating bad meat. Um, so really the choice was more by necessity and health than it was by ethical decision-making, you know, um, towards animal rights. Um, I did go to Humboldt state university and, uh, they are very well known for vegetarian sort of granola ideologies. Mm-hmm. I did drink the Kool-Aid a little bit while I was there. Um, mm-hmm. And as I got into my late 20s, um, I sort of started thinking about where my food comes from. Um, And I was looking at my plate of non-meat items and really realizing that my carbon footprint was huge on what was on my plate. Um, And that I I really wasn't sustainable how I was eating. Um, So that's really the initial, like, thing that that drove me into wanting to pig hunt. Mm -hmm. You know, and pigs seemed like a good introductory uh, hunt for me, um, not necessarily by animal type, but because yeah. they're invasive, right? Um, 
since they're non-native invasive, I, I felt as someone who was trying to be conscientious about food choices that hunting pigs would be a good move for, you know, conservation. Um, Absolutely. Plus, who doesn't love bacon? I mean, right? really, like, everybody loves pork. Well, <laughs> in my opinion, I think pigs, for the most part, from what I've seen as far as vegetarians or vegans or people that want to get into hunting for their first time, it's kind of like the gateway drug into hunting. Oh, it's an adrenaline rush, too. Everybody so is fun. like, I want to go hunt pigs. No, most of the new hunters that I get aren't saying, I want to go hunt deer, or I want to go hunt mm-hmm. elk, or turkeys, or pheasant, or any of the game species. The, right. the first thing that everybody says is, I want to go hunt pigs. Yeah, but do you think it's because of their role as non-native invasive? I don't. I, actually, I don't think it's it. I don't think it is. You don't think it is. What do you think it is? Personally, I think people just look at pigs as bacon and exactly <laughs> what you said. And everybody's just like, oh, pigs are going to be easy. And it, it's, it's, they're such a dirty animal and it's they're okay so to clean. kill that. And they're so smart, actually. And I, and I don't think that a lot of people look at it as like, oh, I'm going to go hunt pigs because they're an invasive species. I don't think most new hunters that I've, that I've taught are educated enough to know which species are invasive and which ones aren't. Right. I don't think that either. Uh, We should do a poll in our hunter's ed classes. Yeah. Because I I actually think that people start with pigs because it seems like a good thrill-seeking challenge. Yeah. Like the idea of going after a pig seems kind of dangerous. You know, most people that are not familiar with hunting and not super familiar with California hunting imagine these wild boars with these huge cutters. Um, you know what I mean? They don't They're imagine, like, all. feral pigs. Yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> so they imagine these, like, big razorbacks, you know, that yeah. are going to come after you. And I, I think that there's a there's a bit of a, like, badass feeling around yeah. uh, hunting pigs. And I think that's why new hunters want to go after them. Oh, yeah. You know? I mean, bacon is a plus. Yeah. Actually, have you ever eaten bacon off a wild pig? I actually, I have a couple times. Have you? A few times it's been good, but it's most not of very the time good. it's terrible. <laughs> It's not very good. Yeah. I've never had good bacon. The well, and they're not fat, isn't right? The best. Right. Yeah. They're not super fatty anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. I don't, you know, we joke around bacon, but it's really not the bacon. Yeah. Um, so, so, full circle back to opening up about yourself. Right. So, you got into hunting, you picked up a bow. I picked up a bow. Yep. And then, about six months into my adventure in, in the outdoors, um, I established quite a fan club of people who did not agree with what I was doing. Really? Um, and I started getting harassed. Um, I call it my fan club, but uh, I guess that's not a very, it's kind of passive aggressive. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah, they tried to derail my life. I mean, it made international headlines. Um, around Jen the murderer. Really? Um, yeah. And, and now, was this because you were associated with animal rights people and people that knew you as a vegetarian? Well, I don't... And being I was in actually, Southern California? Or is this a completely different lifestyle change and not many people and somehow you just got exposed to a community that didn't like you? Right. Well, I definitely was never part of a network of animal rights people. Okay. I didn't even have any friends that were involved in animal rights stuff. So that's definitely not the case. I mean, I don't know how it started, really. Um, All I know is that it happened. Um, A couple of pictures surfaced that I posted on my private social media. So this is a PSA to hunters. Like, pay attention to what you post. Like, it doesn't help our case to, to encourage hunting. 
um, and the social acceptability of it when people get a hold of pictures that could be misinterpreted. Absolutely. Right? So social media is sort of a double-edged sword. But um, anyway, I had a picture of me with some snow geese. Um, that was a big one um, with people getting really upset saying that, you know, I was over the limit and this and that, which I was not over the limit, but the limit's pretty high for snow geese. Yeah, just <laughs> So, um, it was, yeah, so that, that picture, uh, stirred up a lot. So I don't, I think it was a combination of things, uh, that picture. And then, um, our, my best friend and I started the bring a kid campaign, which was about bringing kids into the outdoors to do things that they had never done in the outdoors, including hunting, fishing, and the shooting sports. Um, and so that kind of came up at the exact same time. Um, and so I don't know if it was one of those things or a combination of those things, but it, it started on social media. Um, and then from there spread to my actual real life in, in person. Um, oh, wow. and it spread, spread to my work life. Uh, people were picketing, <laughs> uh, my work, Are uh, you kidding? vandalizing my house and my car, wow. um, you know, showing up to places that I was giving academic, um, speeches around ethical food topics um and they'd fill up the first two rows with you know signs that are like you know it's not meat it's murder type stuff um and so for about gosh i don't know 18 months um it was an everyday thing i I still get the death threats i still get the social media keyboard commandos um trying to sliding in the dm yeah you know i still get all of that um but it's not as common anymore or maybe I just don't spend as much time on social media not having regular internet access. I don't know. Maybe it's a combination of those things. Um, so I didn't mean to go into the public eye. It just sort of happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but through that, what I don't think was expected, and this happens when people don't do their research, um, the people who decided to um, follow me and harass me did not look into my background. And so, you know, I have a pretty strong education um, in human rights work, social justice issues. Um, and so that's how I ended up where I am now, working to protect hunting, fishing, and trapping rights um, yeah. and giving a voice to sportsmen and women in California. Yeah. Um, and so I started working in the outdoor industry very quickly with my educational background, um, learning about how we as outdoors people are disenfranchised in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they gave you, me a soapbox to stand on, really. What would you say is, is one of the leading causes of that, of us being disenfranchised? One of the leading... Well, I think it's a multiple causes. I don't think there's any one thing. Um, I think that the main causes are we as a community have not done a really great job of promoting ourselves appropriately and in the right places. Um, we also haven't done a really great job of reproducing ourselves in numbers. You know, a lot of people who hunt and fish, their kids actually don't hunt and fish. They don't pass it on. Or we're not having enough kids to reproduce it, right? So yeah. back in the day, we'd have three, four, five kids, and at least half of them would probably participate. Now most people are having one or two kids. Um, and so that alone is not enough of a population to reproduce these sort of these relationships to the outdoors. The other thing I think that has happened is, you know, you can't have this conversation without talking about sort of the vilification of hunters, especially. Um, and the, you know, there, there's been a very big push to, to anthropomorphize or make like human animals in movies. Um, with the big eyes and the personalities, right? Mm-hmm. Cecil the lion. 
Yeah. Um, so the media has done a really good job of giving the wild this cute and fluffy appearance. Um, and because people are disassociated from the outdoors altogether, not even just hunting and fishing, just the outdoors. Yeah. People are afraid of the dark. They're afraid to go outside. They're afraid to camp. They're afraid to hike. Um, so they're definitely not going to hunt and fish if they can't even go outside. You yeah. know. Um, so I think a combination between those things um, together has resulted in sort of this social unacceptability of hunting and fishing because it's not well understood. And we haven't done a really good job as a community of trying to to do that education. Hunters and anglers. Right, right. Yeah. So, I mean, I know we're really quick as a community to, to, to push the blame onto other people, right, or other institutions. I know, you know, people will blame politics. People will blame liberals. People blame all sorts of things, right? Yeah. But at one point, the outdoors was for everyone. Absolutely. Regardless if you were conservative or liberal. Well, perfect case, you go back to Harry and the Hendersons movie that came out in our youth <laughs> right, for right. sure or maybe before our youth right there in the 80s mm-hmm. the opening 25 minutes of harry and the hendersons is a father taking his son on a hunt mm-hmm. you know and most people don't remember that because 90 percent of us haven't seen it since we were right right you know, five years old but it used to be completely okay and legitimate for movies to start out like that you know right and and I don't want to say glorifying that relationship, but at least showing the relationship, you know, at the time, which was between a father and a son mm-hmm. today could be shown and portrayed in so many more ways than not, than a father and son, because the right. industry has grown, um, uh, I'm trying to tiptoe on my words here. I feel like it used to be a heavily male dominated industry. And mm-hmm. in the last five to 10, 15 years, um, the path has been paved. Why are they they're doing not, road work outside. Yeah, but they're not even... Sorry. No, it's I okay. want to tell my husband because I think it's PG&E and he, they're actually supposed to get permission. Yeah, I don't know who it is. Uh, he's going to be pissed. Sorry. Do you want me to stop this? Yeah, I'm just going to text him real quick. Okay. Um, Cameo, husband, text message. I know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I feel... It's it's funny to me how far down a path, but at the same time, I, as hunters, I feel like we are largely to blame because continuously, and I feel like especially in California, we don't do anything to better our own public image. And we go down this path, and, and you kind of said it as, you know, blame liberals or blame this or blame that. And we aren't doing anything to say, wait a minute, let's look at the flyways. You know, wait a minute, let's look at what's going on in the state. Let's look at how much money has been raised by hunting and fishing and license and tag sales and Pittman-Robertson and showing actual statistics. We don't do that. Well, uh, well, I don't know. I think we do the statistic thing. Do you? Well, I think that a lot of the NGOs and conservation organizations do. Uh-huh. But the problem with that is that th- those statistics... Uh, and the scientific knowledge that all of us as hunters and anglers care so much about, it doesn't resonate with the public because it doesn't mean anything to them, right? So um, this is something that we're talking about in R3 right now, uh, pretty heavily in the state. Um, and then that is the fact that this, the statistics are tired, right? Everybody, the old way of thinking that we can't seem to get past is 
well, well we're going to show them the statistics. The science doesn't lie. The, you know, if, if people just understood. Well, the problem with statistics is that if you don't have an inherent relationship about the topic of the statistics, they're not relevant. So think about being in school, right? You're in class for history or whatever, and some topic comes up and you find out that, you know, some percentage of these people this happened to, right? Or X amount of people migrated from point A to point B. In that moment, that might be a a very sort of interesting fact. But after that moment, the chances of you reconnecting with that fact is pretty slim. Because it's not relevant. So when we talk about conservation, the average Californian does not even know what that word means. Um, And that's kind of hard for, I think, us as hunters to think about, the fact that people don't know what that word means. But I would challenge every hunter out there to ask 10 friends who don't hunt and aren't married to a hunter if they know what that word means Mm -hmm. and see what the responses are. Because we're using the statistics and we're using the facts in narratives that only we understand. So we have to start painting a message that resonates with people in their everyday life. Um, And usually it's going to be done through images, you know? So we need to be careful about the images we put out there. But if we put the right images out there with pictures of landscapes that, that people see and can have an emotional reaction to like wow that's really pretty or i would like to go there someday with those statistics all of a sudden now there's an impact yeah because it resonates yeah yeah but i do think hunters are partially to blame and i'm not saying that other facets of of what's happening are external there's plenty of external factors as well that we can't control but a lot of the factors in where we are today we can control and we can definitely add to them. And the opinion and, and, and viewpoints that happen on social media, especially the whole, I don't give a damn. I'm going to do what I want anyway. They're never going to take my guns. They can go screw themselves. All of those narratives become public. And that becomes the stereotype of what a hunter is. Mm-hmm. That doesn't help us. You know, mm-hmm. I think that uh, if you're not going to care, who is? Right? Who is? You don't care because it's you're going to be dead by the time it's going to matter? Because it won't be here after your life? Well, that to me is not a... That's not a good hunter. It's not a good conservationist either. Yeah. Well, that's pretty sad. When hunters get called to action, myself included, who shows up to Sacramento? Who's showing up in front <laughs> of the commission? Right. Do, do hunters show up? Do they... Do... Do we, as hunters, and I'm including myself because I haven't mm-hmm. shown up. I mean, I do my best on here and teaching and volunteering and stuff like that through those avenues. But are are we showing up to try and change things when there's bills coming up? You know, bobcat bill, pig bill last year, you know, hounds and bear hunting, you know, all the way back. Where are we lacking? What aren't we doing? What could we be doing better? So, in, I'm going to sort of generalize here. Absolutely. Right? And, of course, this doesn't apply to every single person, but for the majority of hunters in California, no, we don't ever show up. We don't ever show up to anything. We expect our lobbyists that we pay into some legislative fund to show up for us. And while that's really important, right, those lobbyists are important in the sort of social fabric of politics in our state, they're also the same faces that are seen over and over and over by our decision makers. 
And so... Redundancy. It's redundant, right. And and they are effective in some ways, right, because they have a lot of relationships with people and organizations and they know how to build coalitions. And those things are important. But we all have to remember that our representatives are supposed to be representing us, right? They have to work with lobbyists, but they're still supposed to be representing us. So if we don't show up, they don't know how to represent us. Yeah. So the, the ways that we should be showing up... Um, you know, letter writing, I know there's a lot of letter templates that come out. Something comes out, and you're like, oh, you know, send, send this letter to your representative and blah, blah, here's blah. Here's an Put email you, account. Yeah, here's a, here's here's a, a template. Number. Yeah. Okay, those templates are basically not effective. <laughs> like, they're just not, because yeah. they're going to get a bunch of them from a bunch of people, um, and it's the exact same check, letter. Check. Yeah, it's like, check, it's like throwing throw a dollar away. at a raffle. You yeah. know, it's, it's not <laughs> super uh, impactful. So it's much more impactful if you actually call and set up a meeting with your representative and ask to speak with them face-to-face. Yeah. Uh, if you can't do that, sending a personalized letter or email that you've actually taken the time to write and not just sign off your name and your address on. Um, the other things you can do is actually show up, physically show up. So um, let me back up. So before we do any of these things, I think that it's also pretty important for us to call out the fact that the average Californian has no idea how civics works. Um, I don't think any of us paid attention in high school civics class, <laughs> yeah. you know, because people don't get, you know, you hear all these things of, oh, the state's this, oh, the state's that. Well, what is the state? What does that mean? Who are you blaming? And why are you blaming them? And what are you going to do about that blame? Right? So the state, you know, for us, is, as far as hunting and fishing, you know, goes, um, there's really three parts of what I think people mean when they say the state. So there's the legislature, right? That's the body that's in charge of passing laws. Then there's the Fish and Game Commission. They're a regulatory body. So all of your regs, season, bag limits, things like that, come out of the commission. Then the third part is Department of Fish and Wildlife. Now, they don't make laws or regulations. All all they do is enforce them. Um, And their job is as a public agency, right, to serve all of California. So... 6% of us in California hunt and fish. So they have 94% of other people who aren't hunters and anglers that they also have to serve because they're a public agency. So, you know, there's a big gripe about how fish and wildlife does not represent hunters and and anglers. Um, But if you go through the things they put out in public, more than half of what they put out is about fishing and hunting, but only 6% of the people they're representing fish and hunt. So actually, my opinion, since since working with them has, has changed pretty drastically. I was sort of of the opinion of, oh, they don't do anything for us. Um, I don't agree with that anymore. Now that I have seen some perspective. More on the and put it, Yeah, I've kind of put in a perspective of like, okay, wait, I understand their role better now. Um, but in terms of, of making changes to what our experience is in this state, going to the commission meetings is the easiest way to make changes because it's just a panel of people. Right. And anybody can put in a proposal to make a change. You don't have to be a lobbyist. You don't have to be, you know, a politician. You can be Joe Blow from down the street that has a great idea for for changes. And the form is available on the Fish and Game Commission website. It's two pages long. Fill it out. Turn it in. They'll hear it. You know, so I. Well, that's what they're paid to do. That's what they're paid. Well, they're not really paid commissioners. or have a stipend. They're volunteers. Oh, wow. So, um. They get a stipend. Um, but yeah, no, they, they don't get paychecks. Mm-hmm. Commission does not get paid. Uh, but 
they're a lot more approachable than the legislature. You know, the legislature is a little more convoluted. When anytime you play in politics, it's it's a little scary if you don't know how to navigate the the <laughs> halls. You know, um, and you would have to start with your representative for the legislature, which seems more daunting. The Fish and Game Commission meetings are public, and anybody can go to them. And the agendas are available online ahead of time. You can see exactly the issues that are going to be covered. You can see uh, whether or not it's worth your time to go for that day or not. Like It's all public information. And the public is not only welcome, but encouraged to, to participate. So it shouldn't be a scary process. Um, but you know who does show up the Fish and Game Commission meetings when there's an issue? Striped bass fishermen. They always show up. Yeah. <laughs> They're like the most... Uh, anglers show up. Anglers show up, but the stripe, striper fisher anglers, man, stripe, <laughs> the striper guys are, are on point. I went to the commission meeting last month, and they filled the room with like 250 people. Really? Yep. That's an impact. It's an impact. That's a visual impact. It's an impact. And you know, the thing about showing up is you don't have to show up and talk. You just have to show up. And you, you elect one or two people to get up and talk on the behalf of the entire group. You pick the best spokesperson to get up and talk about the issue. Yeah. And then the rest is just there for visual impact to say, hey, we're here, we care, and, and we want you to listen to, to our point of view, yeah. to our side of things, you know? Well, but anybody can do it. And I, I think for a lot of guys that hunt, we tend to sometimes fall back on, well, I'm working class. I can't leave my job to go show up. Right. Or I can't take the time for my family to go show up or I can't, you know, how am I going to make up for the loss of income? Because most guys that hunt that would be showing up to those things, they all have jobs. They all have to work. They're all working class. Right. So you don't have to physically show up either. I mean, you can write to the commission Hmm. and they don't expect everybody to have, you know, grade A grammar and punctuation, (laughs) you know, so just use spell check. You'll be fine. Um, you know, but, but at the end of the day, you can show up in lots of ways. The commission is pretty available, um, even if... Receptive. Well, I don't know. I don't know if I'd say receptive. <laughs> but they're available. Um, and I actually think right now the group of commissioners that we have are pretty receptive, especially more so than maybe in the past um, mm-hmm. of some commissioners we have had. Um, I really... The group of people we have right now, as far as I've uh, seen... They're all really willing to work with people to learn about what they don't know. The thing about it is, is that these are just regular people that have, that have been put into a position to make decisions for the public, and we have to educate them. But there's been multiple commissioners that, that are sitting on the commission now that when they've been invited out to learn about something that they don't know about, they go. You know, so... Um, if they want to learn about what it means to be a houndsman, like they'll go show them what it means to be a houndsman, show them what it means to be a falconer, invite them, they'll go. Um, and I don't know if that's always happened with the commission, but the people that are there right now typically will go if they get the invitation. So if there's something coming up on the commission agenda that you think you can impact by helping educate, invite them, invite them to go. Um, see if they'll show see up. See if they'll show up. Yeah. I mean, obviously, they're busy, and they have regular lives and jobs outside of being on the commission. This yeah. is not their full-time job. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think that the commission is a relatively approachable body of people where the average person who's a hunter or angler can make changes. So, but we have to show up. 
and we don't do that. So the, the very first commission meeting that I went to um, when I was hired by the department as our three coordinator, uh, there were some pretty big hunting things on that agenda. And I looked around that room and not one hunter showed up. What was on the agenda? So there was a minimum archery draw weight being proposed at 40 pounds. There was a sidearm carry being proposed um, for archers. Um, During, with a, with a deer tag in no, your pocket? No, so the deer, ta- the deer tag, no, so it would have been every season except deer. So the deer tag sidearm carry is a legislative thing. That, was, oh, that really? went through the legislature, so that, has to, that requires legislative change. But the rest of the year is regulatory. So the commission oversees that. So, um, and that's been a huge hot topic, right? Now you get it through the commission, then the next logical step is to go through the legislature to get the deer season one, mm-hmm. you know, on board. So, so really quick, to get the legislature on board, what do hunters have to do? Because that's something I, and like you said, there's a lot of gripes about it. That's something that people get really upset about. And people think that the commission are the ones that have to change or... Right have the ability to make that change and it sounds like it's the legislation power yeah so i think again going back to like the unknownness of civics like mm-hmm. people it's very convoluted right and it's not just california every state politics are convoluted like well, trying to figure out who does what and when well is not difficult. only that but some things are regulatory and then some things are legislative right and, and figuring that, it out is I hard think, and figuring out which one is on which side Mm-hmm. And then figuring out your approach right. to whichever one is on whichever side. I think that's a very difficult It is. It is. Part. It's, so I have a couple suggestions. The first one is if you want to care enough to do something and to go into action, which I hope everybody does, um, because we would be in a lot better of a position if we did. Even if 1%. Okay, we have close to 3 million people in the state who hunt and fish. Mm-hmm. If 1% of that showed up this state would look very different yeah you you know one percent one percent yeah i mean really there's there's about three hundred thousand hunters in this state even one percent of just that yeah imagine the impact in a room full of one percent of three hundred thousand people yeah i don't think the room could hold that many people right (laughs) so the fact that nobody shows up is you know of, of course our lobbyists show up You know, but and people that work in the profession sometimes show up. But the average hunter and angler, they just don't show up. Um, And it's a problem. If we just showed up, I think we could change some stuff. But um, anyway, so my first suggestion is if there's an issue that you care about and you don't know where to start, you need to reach out to the conservation NGOs and ask them what avenue to take because they all have legislative people that they have hired or people who work in politics, right? Whether that's a lobbyist whether that is um, a political affairs team um, that they have or a person who does nothing but public policy for them, policy advisors, they all have somebody that does that work. Mm -hmm. So they can point you in the right direction, right? The second thing I have is uh, look up the agendas, (laughs) like for everything. Everything's available online. So if you go to the commission website, you can find the commission agendas. You can see exactly what topics they're handling for the year. You can go to the California legislature website and you can see exactly what topics they're handling for the year before anything even happens. So you have enough time to learn about those things before they're even heard. So that will give you the ability to 
um, do some research and formulate your thoughts around it. And like I said, it doesn't have to be a PhD dissertation. Even just a down-to-earth letter mm-hmm. or phone call could potentially affect change, especially if there's enough of them. Um, and then you need to learn who your representatives are, which there's a handy-dandy little tool where you put your zip code in and it tells you. <laughs> yeah. So you can figure that out pretty easily um, if you go to the California legislature website. Um, and then reach out to them yeah. and tell them, you know, I want to get involved in this and or I don't like how you're voting on this or I do like how you're voting on this. It's just as important to show support for the representatives who are voting in our favor as those who are not. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think we sometimes forget to give positive feedback to people. We're quick to like judge and be like, oh, you should do this. I don't like what you're doing here. Um, but at the end of the day, there are a lot of people who are fighting for hunting and fishing uh, privileges and rights in this state. Um, we should probably tell them that we appreciate that as well. So they keep doing it. Yeah. So going back, you said <clears throat> you went into your first commission meeting. Yeah. And it, there was a couple things that were coming up. So nobody came. Nobody came. <laughs> so nobody came. No, that's not entirely true. I mean that the lobbyists were there. Yeah. Um, but nobody from the recreational hunting community showed up. Not one person. But guess who was sitting in the audience? Hmm. All of our adversaries. <laughs> right. right. And they show so, up. And they do show really up. They're really good at showing up. They show up all the time. Um, and that's why they have been so effective. They show up. It's, you know, it's not even a game of wit and intelligence. It's a game of presence in many ways, right? Um, some of these debates are just, they're ethical debates, right? They're two sides that don't agree on the ethics of something. Um and ethics aren't law, right? We learned that in Hunter's Ed. <laughs> like, yeah. they're not law. And so if you have an ethical debate and one side shows up, but the other doesn't, it looks like the other side just doesn't care. Mm-hmm. And how long have we as hunters not been showing up? I don't know. As so long as I've long been involved. So how does it look like we don't care? I have no idea. You know, there's something also that's interesting about all of this because hunting is sort of, maybe except waterfowl and upland game hunting, uh... Hunting is kind of an introvert activity, right? It's not very Isolation. social. It's isolated. We want to be in the woods alone. So getting all these people who want to be alone and get a break from life and other people, getting yeah. them together to, and ask them to be social is also difficult. Yeah. I was <laughs> so. having a conversation with someone the other day. We were talking about isolation because I isolate mm-hmm. a bunch. Um, and we were having a discussion about like what is isolation and and all the different aspects of it and when they called me on it I was like I do I isolate I spend so much time by myself and then once it's my quote busy season which is hunting season all the way through till December I Mm -hmm. I'll go you know spend 16 hours a day by myself with my thoughts you know, or multiple day-long trips by myself with my thoughts, isolating from as many people as I possibly right. can, trying to focus on, you know, whatever my goal is while I'm out there. Right, it's our recharging period. It is. Right? Absolutely. It's our, for me, it's my reflection. You know, when I'm, I'm doing my most inner soul searching, whether it be about my love life, my job, my professional life, you know, or like the podcast or mm-hmm. you know my relationships with my friends my family mm-hmm. 
you know, and that's where I come to a lot of conclusions about myself. And I also feel like that's where most of my spiritual growth right. comes out of. But yeah. It's, yeah, totally. it's, that's a very good point is that a lot of us are isolationists and, mm-hmm. and we prefer to have that isolation. Right. And then as a result, though, we've lost the social aspect of, of hunting and mm-hmm. social acceptance of hunting yeah. for people who don't participate. Yeah. Right. So how can you get a group of people who like to be isolated mm-hmm. to all of a sudden be extroverted uh, folks talking to people who don't have anything in common with them, yeah. right? And so, and that's always going to be a problem. I don't think we're ever going to fix that. Um, we just need to figure out who in our groups are the extroverts or capable of being the extroverts or willing even um, to reach out and extend a hand across the aisle to someone who does not participate. Mm-hmm. Because the average person, it, I don't even think they're against hunting and fishing. It's more about, it's not even a topic in their repertoire. Like, they just don't even think about it. And so that, I mean, that, going back to my background, um, I know you had written down one of these questions about, you know, was I an anti-hunter or was I with anti-hunters? I definitely was never with anti-hunters um, or never even agreed with, with their ideology. Um, but uh, even growing up in San Diego, on the coast, mind you, two miles from the beach, um, I knew fishing was a thing, right? Because it was everywhere. Um, and then I was in FFA in high school where it could have, hunting could have been introduced at that point, right? That's a pretty good parallel kind yeah. of lifestyle. Um, I can't say it's ever been brought up. Like, I don't think that I ever heard anyone say, I'm going to go hunting. Um, or Along the entire journey. Along the entire journey through FFA. And I mean, I was super involved. I was president of, of two different chapters. I was involved in San Diego, San Diego section leadership. Um, I mean, I was very involved in FFA. Mm-hmm. Um, and not once in my high school journey do I recall anyone mentioning hunting. Um, and then I went to college. Um, again, it was not something that was ever introduced to me. I never saw a TV show. I never, I mean, maybe passing in movies, right? I knew hunting existed. But I did not know it was an activity in California that happened. Yeah, unless you um, pick up a hunting magazine. Which right, but I had California no reason to. Is rarely ever featured in right. any hunting magazine. Right. Well, I also had no reason to, right? Because yeah. it was not something that was in my repertoire of of knowledge or yeah. even interest. Um, and so I think, like most Californians, I wasn't against hunting. I just didn't even know anything about it. Yeah. You know, and I actually got interested in hunting because I had the goal of living off grid, and I knew that I had already canned. Um, and I loved to garden and I made beer and wine and I, you know, I had all these other sort of survival off-grid homesteading skills. Um, and hunting and fishing was sort of the next evolution yeah. to achieving my goal. Yeah. But the average person is not looking to live off-grid on 22 acres in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> so, where it's 110 degrees. Where it's 100, yeah, in the devil's crotch and 110 degrees. Yeah, thanks California. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, where we're evacuated every year because of wildfires. <laughs> yeah, seriously, it's terrifying. So, so, yeah, I mean, I think the average person just doesn't know. And so I know a lot of hunters are apprehensive about sharing these stories and these narratives with people who don't hunt because some people are afraid of what the reaction may be. They don't want to lose friends. They don't want to, you know, cause problems for their kids at school, whatever. But at the end of the day... The majority of people, and even national surveys, you know, support this. And even in California-specific surveys, it supports this. The average person is not against 
hunting and fishing. At all? No, at all. As long as it's legal and regulated, right? They don't know the difference between hunting and poaching, so that's a problem. But um, for food sources. Mm -hmm. Now, when you start talking about specific issues, there's a more of a division, right? Mm -hmm. When you start bringing up like trigger words like trophy hunting the average person does not understand that ethical hunting is trophy hunting yeah. you know they don't understand that calling the herd you know going after a mature animal that's no longer reproducing those types of things also equal usually decent trophies yeah <laughs> they, they don't understand that relationship so as hunters we have to be careful how we use terminology in public i like that trophy hunting is ethical hunting it is ethical hunting absolutely right so um and I know in California, a trophy may not be <laughs> what we would consider a trophy elsewhere. But, um, you know, and, and, and in that regards, anything can be a trophy also, yeah. right? And I get really irritated when I hear hunters talk about, you know, how much more important their trophy is to someone else's trophy. When at the end of the day, a trophy can be anything. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I make... Your first buck on public land. I make me anything. Yeah. You know, I save the feathers from ducks I shoot and I make earrings and stuff out of them. You yeah. know, and those are trophies that I wear almost every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're no less important to me than any of that on the wall over there. Yeah. You know, I uh, I hunted in Africa. I got married in Africa a couple years ago and... Uh, we're still waiting for our trophies. <laughs> they should be here next week. Thank God. Finally. Driving down to the bay for that. Yeah. yeah. Finally. We've been waiting two years for them. But um, those trophies would uh, remind me of just a different experience than those duck feathers, mm-hmm. you know, or that turkey or whatever, you know. And I, I don't know what this, like, competition for... Inches? Ego and, yeah, I mean... I just watched a, a film the other day when I was in Utah at the Total Archery Challenge called Elk Fever 3. And it was put out by, I want to say, Canna Outdoors. And they're Southern California filming crew of guys that love to hunt and fish and film. Mm-hmm. And in the film, they're reflecting back to the guy who created, the two guys who created... Um, why is it I just said the name of the film Tana? no elk oh elk fever fever there we yeah. go god how did I forget that that quick <laughs> um, so the guy who created the two guys who created elk fever 1 and elk fever 2 when they would go in their films and they would diagram an elk you know or there'd be an elk walking by on film and they would talk about that elk they would be talking about 450 pounds of meat or 650 pounds of meat never once would they reference the antlers or the inches like of it. antler yeah I like it it, it was it That's was great. really 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 neat to see because right. back in the day that's I mean that's how I was raised was mm-hmm. I, I always look at this, the meat off of an animal. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that doesn't mean that I haven't I killed like my fair hun- share of small animals. Yeah, but, but most hunters, I think, actually do that. It's For just sure. not the narrative that gets public, right? It's Absolutely. Public. It's kind of like we, like we talked on the phone a while back, uh, you and I, about, about what's lost in translation. Absolutely. Right? So we put these pictures out on social media, right? Our grip and grins, mm-hmm. you know? And, and those pictures 
are translated well to other hunters. We understand what's behind the picture. Mm -hmm. We understand the hunt. We understand the effort. We understand the respect. Mm -hmm. We understand the conservation and the cost and the everything else that goes along with it, right? The preparation and scouting and, you know, the countless hours of racking your brain about how to get from point A to point B. And, you know, we we get it. Yeah, Yeah, we get it. But the average person who does not hunt, that picture is lost in translation. And what they see is death. Mm-hmm. It's all they see. Death. You see death and a smile. And a smile. Right. So it, it's not, there's no interpreter there to interpret that picture for those people. Right. And so the same, the same thing goes with this idea of trophy hunting. There's no interpreter there to interpret what does that mean? Because for the average person who, who didn't grow up doing this or didn't come to it and had good teachers along the way, it doesn't resonate. And so I like that they're, they're using this meat reference because what we do know today is that millennial hunters and adult onset hunters, um, this movement towards local vor, uh, organic, sustainable eating, um, organic protein acquisition, mm-hmm. you know, all of the things that go around food um, resonates with the general public. Absolutely. And, and that can change the narrative, but it can also change the social acceptability of hunting mm-hmm. because the food doesn't need an interpreter. Well, it's understood. Yeah, something right. last weekend, again, I'm going to reference when I was at the Total Archery Challenge, um, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation had Shane Mahoney come out, mm-hmm. and Shane Mahoney did a speech about how he has been trying to accumulate all of the data. Wild Harvest Initiative. The Wild Harvest yeah. Initiative and yeah. everything that he has going on under that. Yeah. And it sounds like he's getting really mm-hmm. close to having, you know, pretty solid fact-based numbers about how much wild game, whether it be fish or, you know, uh, big game out of the mountains, how much meat is being produced Mm -hmm. by hunting and the sustainability of it. Right. We could solve the hunger crisis in this country with it. And it's insane. Right. To think that. Right. You know, and something that he brought up, which was that I loved and I feel like as hunters we all overlook it, when for me, for example, when I go out and hunt and I come home and I have, you know, two or three freezers full of different wild game, I'm going any barbecue I'm going to, I'm bringing wild game to share with everybody or mm-hmm. showing up to a friend's house with a brown paper bag full of meat to be like, here, man, have some free wild game, mm-hmm. you know, and, and enjoy this and share this with your family and friends. Mm-hmm. Us as hunters and fishermen or us as hunters and anglers, one of the things that we all get pride in is sharing the meat and sharing the bounties with other people. Right. And so these are the messages, though, that need to be put out on social media. Absolutely. These are the messages that we need to put out in our marketing and in our photographs. But how hard is it to be like, you know, get on your social media and be like, hey, everybody, here's a bag of 20 pounds of wild game and I'm going to go give this to somebody for free because... This is just in my nature as a hunter to be a great, giving, friendly person. But yeah, do it. Guess what? I that's so uncomfortable it's, it's and that's not, so awkward. You have and to it's do it the right so, way. I, but it, like, for me and for most of the guys that I know, like when we do that stuff, we don't want recognition for it. We don't want public right. grace. We're not doing it for ego or so, for anything like that. We're but doing it, doesn't need it to be out that. of kindness and right. love. And, and so, and, yeah, but that's this narrative that we need to show the public. Yeah. So forget about you know, recognition and and all of that. Think about it as an effort to change the narrative 
of how the public views the actions of hunters. Mm -hmm. Because that action shows a very different story than the grip and grin, mm -hmm. right? And so you don't have to focus on yourself for the post. You can focus on the meat for the post or the receiving family for the post or the idea of community and togetherness for the post or even the idea of just cooking meals together, right? Mm -hmm. Food brings everybody together. Absolutely. So, so all of the... The community. Right. You know, even though we're isolationists, we're still a community of people that support one another. Storytellers. We are. And back in the day, we used to print out all these pictures and share our gripping grins with like-minded people around a campfire, mm. not on social media, where they can be misinterpreted, right? When mm. you got 30 yotes hanging on a fence line, it doesn't look good to the public. You know, when you have a mound of doves in a pile, it doesn't look good. And as I learned, a mound of snow geese, <laughs> it doesn't look good to the public, right? Yeah. And so, so I think that we have to do a better job of conveying the messages that lead up to those pictures. Yeah. And what happens after those pictures, right? Uh, if I never see another grip and grin again, it'll be too soon. Uh, on social media. Now, I say all these things and I'm not immune to them. I should also clarify that I have plenty of grip and grins on social media. Um, well, I think you know. I think as far as grip and grins go, uh, the biggest thing that, that we can do as hunters is remember that when we post a grip and grin photo, uh, the story that we post with it is matters. extremely important. Right, it matters. And it's not just a, hey, check this out, I fucking killed this and this was amazing. Right. You know, it, it's... Right. Because before, you can do a hashtag and have it show up in any feed. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And, mm -hmm. and it gets selected and shown in any feed that you hashtag with. As to where now, you can show up in almost any feed you want by putting a hashtag mm -hmm. on a photo. And before, you're going to find grip and grins in magazines with a page or a half a page article right. about the hunt telling the story but also and everything the audience. else the it audience was, was specific, specific hunters right so yeah. that's my husband coming home Got so it. you'll get to meet him oh nice <laughs> um so yeah i mean the audience and the intention all of these things are lost in translation on social media and social yeah. media is a double-edged sword it has the potential to carry our messages far and wide but it has the potential to carry the wrong messages far and wide just as much as the right just ones. as easy cecil the line right and we have to do a better job and be responsible for the content that we're putting out there um and if we don't do that I mean, the end of it is our fault, kind of. Absolutely. You know, the end of this thing will be our fault. Uh, we can blame other things and other factors in politics, but again, not showing up. It would be our fault. We didn't show up. I don't know about anyone else, but for me, I'm here to fight till the end. That's why I... That's it. My, you know? my biggest difficulty is I don't ever want to move out of California because it's a frontline battle state. Right. For our rights across right. the board. Well, and that's what happens, right? People on social media, I get it all the time. Well, what? You know, George is waiting for you, wherever. Waiting for you. Come to Kansas. Come to yeah. Minnesota. Come to whatever. You know, and if, if I leave this state, I'm no better than the people not showing up. Yeah. I'm no better than anyone else doing nothing. And yeah. I'm not willing to be that person. Yeah. I'm not. I can relate to that a lot. You know, I'm just not. And California... As much crap as we get, <laughs> we actually have some pretty amazing hunting and fishing opportunities in the state. Yeah. You know? And and we have the ability to 
ski and surf in the same day. You yeah. know, like we have well, the ability to that. do so I mean, many awesome things. You here. can get an elk slam in California. It's the only state in the nation where you can kill all three species of elk. You might be waiting your whole life to get a tag, but it's possible. <laughs> Unless you buy private land management. Tags. Right, right. And so at twenty five thousand a pop, right? Because everybody has that pocket change. Yeah, it's just chilling in, their in back California. Pocket. Everybody uh, does because we're all rich, right? Of course, it must be the wine in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, I, I I think we have our diversity here in yeah. species is is pretty amazing. And yeah. I know people are upset about the price of hunting and fishing and all of that, but you know, at the end of the day, um, I feel like I'm getting a bargain for what I pay every year. Um, we get two deer tags. I mean, How many states do we get two buck tags? Our cell, my cell phone bills more than what I pay for my hunting license, and mm-hmm. it's only for a month, you know. So I get it that the inflation of hunting licenses is quite a lot yeah. compared to, you know, when they were a dollar um, mm-hmm. back in the day. But I also don't have that relationship to money um, because I've never hunted when hunting licenses were that cheap as an adult onset participant. I've always paid about the same, right? Yeah. And so for me, I don't see that big jump. Um, but when you have a family of hunting licenses to buy for, um, like we do, it does get kind of expensive. But then I think of a family vacation or I think of other things. We go out to dinner for a night and I'm spending more in that one night than I am on hunting licenses all year. And so when I put it into perspective, I, you know, feel less horrible about the price. Um, and it's an opportunity every day to go and do something in the outdoors. Yeah. Right? If you if you hunt all seasons, I mean, you, you could go out every single day and hunt. Yeah. Right? Well, and especially with pigs. Right. You know, I mean, that's <clears throat> one of my biggest things that I do is to keep my focus and keep my eyes and keep everything ready for wild game is I'll go pig hunt after the deer seasons are closed and I'll pig hunt mm-hmm. all winter long to keep my eyes tuned to looking for game in the field Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so with all of that being said and having gone down a million tangents and (laughs) random thought processes and everything like that um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the r3 movement because you mentioned it once or twice already and becoming the r3 coordinator for the state of california Um, what exactly is r3 so because a lot of people don't know. Yeah, they don't, and it, yeah, I think it's starting to gain some speed and traction. Um, but a lot of people don't know, um, and it's pretty important, I think. So R three is the official name of Hunt uh, and Fish Retain. I'm sorry. Can you scratch that? <laughs> no, I don't edit. So. I know. <laughs> I'm tired. It's okay. Um, so it's uh, hunting and. Angling, uh, recruitment, retention, and reactivation, Mm -hmm. which means, so the recruitment part, I think, is pretty obvious. It's to recruit new people into our ranks. The retain part is to retain the people we have, because we don't want to lose them, right? And the reactivate part is to reactivate people who no longer hunt and fish inside of California. Now, this is not a California thing. This is a national thing, and every state is doing it. So it's not a money grab, uh, it's not some weird marketing thing. It is literally a national effort that's being spearheaded by the Council to Advance Hunting and the Shooting Sports mm-hmm. um, and the Recreational Boating and Fishing Foundation. Um, those are sort of the NGO 
spearheads of the effort. And then U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service um, is also involved at the national level. And then every state around the nation has a coordinator that has been hired at their state's respective fish and wildlife agency. You know, they, they call them different things in different states. But um, and then so that's what I am for California. And then my job is to organize the effort inside the state and be the liaison to the national effort. Um, and the reason why we're doing this. So these activities have always happened. We just didn't call them our three. Right. And now we, now it has a real name. Um, and the reason why we're doing this is for a lot of things that we were just talking about, you know, yeah. um, trying to make sure that hunting and fishing doesn't die in the future. Well, how far down have the numbers fallen every year? So fishing is more stable. You mean in terms of California yeah. or national? Okay. In so, California. So California, fishing is relatively stable. Um, it's not horrible, um, but I, it depends how far back you want to go. Mm-hmm. You know, so at an all time high, I know hunters are always like, I don't want more people in the woods. You know, um, at an all time high, uh, it was 1970. Exactly. Uh, there was a close, there was about 700,000 people with hunting licenses in this state and only about 20 million people lived here. Mm-hmm. Um, so the woods were really flooded with people then. Now we have about 40 million people in the state and about 300,000 people who hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, and so half a million people we've gone down almost <laughs> you know it's, it's a lot of people well the number well the population of the state has, has doubled, skyrocketed doubled right so we as a state can support those numbers because we've done it in the past and actually you know the going back to the cost thing people are always bitching about it's too expensive to hunt in the state or it's too expensive to fish in the state so you know there's been some criticisms around r3 about it being a money grab and at the end of the day how else can we reduce the price of hunting and fishing if less and less people are doing it and it needs to pay for itself. Mm-hmm. The only way to do it is to increase the participation mm-hmm. because we can't pay for ourselves, right? So the Department of Fish and Wildlife has to do a lot of things that aren't just hunting and fishing related, right? They do the cannabis program. They do watershed management. They do a lot of other activities that aren't just involved with hunters and anglers. So each of those activities, has to the money has to come from somewhere. Right, and we all know that our contributions to Pittman Robertson money and SFRA Sport Fishing Restoration Act, um, Dingle Johnson, whatever you want to call it, um, those that, those monies go into a coffer for to go back to the states for conservation funding, um, and then your tags and license sales obviously also support conservation funding. Now, there's a bit of a misconception that hunters and anglers pay for all conservation activities, which is actually not true. Hunters and anglers only pay for about 22% of the department's budget at mm-hmm. this point. We used to pay for over 40% of the department's budget. So there has been a significant decline in the, in the amount of percentage of budget contribution. However, the department's budget has grown exponentially because of all those other activities. Yeah. So actually, we contribute more money now than we ever have before to the department. So Does that our, make sense? Our dollar that we our dollar amount we contribute is more is than more. it's ever been, right. but the percent is lower to the entirety of the budget is, is lower. lower. Right. And where so does the other seventy eight general fund? Um, so federal. Grant, so general state. no general fund taxes. Okay. Um, so general fund money from the legislature. It comes from grant programs. Um, it comes. I mean, it comes from a variety of different sources. Um, the the department's activities are funded by lots of things. Now, cannabis cultivation is partially funding. You know, the department. Yeah. 
um, and conservation activities, um, especially since illegal cannabis cultivation has detrimental impacts to our environment and to hunting and fishing. Absolutely. So, Poisoning and everything. You know, do. well, with, you know, the clear-cut rows, there's soil degradation, there's introduction of pesticides and herbicides that, that we don't want in our natural um, habitat on public water lands. resources. There's all kind of, yeah, they divert stuff. I mean, there's a lot of problems um, with illegal cannabis cultivation. So the legal cannabis cultivators are paying for some of that, mm-hmm. which is nice. Um, so that being said, you know... How much money comes from, say, the Sierra Club or PETA <laughs> uh, or anything nothing. along those lines? Uh, you know, I don't, I, I don't actually know I'm, what the dollar amount would be. Um, the department, I don't think, accepts any money from any special interest group, period. Oh, really? Yeah, no. I, our money, I think, as a public agency, it all has to be on the, the you know... Straight, straight and narrow. Straight and narrow, yeah. yeah. So that being said, it doesn't mean that some of these other special interest groups aren't participating in funding conservation work. They're just not funding conservation work with the department, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. It's so like, you know, DU goes out and does habitat management or CWA or California Deer Association. Like, we all go out, NWTF, and do habitat things. Um, but that money for conservation, that it is all conservation. It comes directly out of their fund. It comes out of their fund, and, and they're it doing it. it doesn't the go to the state. It doesn't go to the department. Yeah. Right. So... Um, the department will work alongside these organizations to make sure that, you know, they're going through CEQA and the appropriate steps to introduce things into the natural environment. Mm-hmm. But their funding is their funding. So the only way to make up the discrepancy of an increasing price for hunting and fishing is to introduce more people into it. Absolutely. Right? Like, I mean, that's a common business practice. I don't know how else to share the cost of that. So um, the biggest thing is we don't want we don't want our percentage of that budget to become obsolete as hunters, right? Because then we become obsolete and we're not a, become expendable a priority anymore, right? Yeah. And so it's important that we buy our hunting licenses every year. It's important that we buy our tags every year. It's important that we buy them for our friends who maybe don't even ever go out. You know, give them well, the like gifts. My, mom, my mom every year <laughs> wants to buy her hunting and fishing license and all that kind of stuff, just so she's getting it. She's not hunting. Right. You know, she's not, she doesn't go fishing much. She goes fishing with my dad every now and then. I know. I wonder if people knew the contributions to conservation that purchasing a license gives if they would just buy it. Mm-hmm. People who don't actually hunt fish. Yeah. You know, we should make a stamp well, or something where people can buy. What's funny to me is the, not misconception, the rumor that went around, I don't know, four or five years ago, and a lot of hunters' education classes of, well, now PETA is buying all the B zone tags and the D zone tags and making all these different areas in the state sell out. And I was like, as an instructor, I know that that's not fact-based information because all of those people would have had to go through hunter's education (laughs) to buy tens of that. You know, we're talking 33,000 tags per unit, you know, per area of the state, whatever. So now you're talking about hundreds at the end of the day, hundreds of thousands of people in the last few years that would have had to filter through Hunter's education. Yeah, and the numbers and don't support that. Not at all. <laughs> so, not at all. Right. I just always find that so funny. <laughs> right. Well, there's lots of this, like, rhetoric and, and you know, fake news that comes through our community. Yeah. And we're really good at perpetuating it, which is yeah. another well, one paranoid. of our problems. We're, we're paranoid isolationists. We are uh, <laughs> conspiracy theorists, you know, and, and I... I 
I mean, man, we're, we're, we're our own worst enemy in so many ways. Absolutely. We are. We I, really are. And part I'll of this R3 thing, part of this R3 thing is trying to curb that and to really get people to look logically at the landscapes that they're living in, mm-hmm. right? The social landscapes especially. So it's R3 is not just about increasing participation. In fact, I would say that's actually a pretty small part of it. The biggest part of it is increasing social acceptability of hunting and fishing because we don't, of course, want everybody in the state to hunt and fish, Mm -hmm. right? Because that would tax the resource. It's not sustainable. Right, it's not sustainable. But we do want everybody in the state to support those who hunt and fish because those are the people who are voting for things that we all get pissed off about, Mm -hmm. like the ban on mountain lions. (laughs) You know, people blame the state. But California voters voted on that. That was not the state. I mean... You bring up a really good point with the mountain lion ban, and so many people talk about it so often. Right. And one of the things that really drives me nuts is how many people want Department of Fish and Wildlife to change that, which that's not a Department of Fish and Wildlife job to change that. No. You know, and and it's exactly what you said, which is the voters of California – need to change that and it's like a four-fifths majority it's a big vote because it was passed by the public a so, long time ago maybe right. maybe there was a lot of junk science behind it maybe there wasn't much facts i don't need maybe yeah, there was maybe there was more emotional base and cute all kinds of stuff like that but at Bob the same Patton. time we still need to come up with as hunters a very good reason to pass this back. To reverse it. Right. Yeah, to reverse it. If it you. ever will happen, right? Yeah. And so, and, um, you know, I can't get into legislative strategy because Absolutely. I work for the department. But, yeah. um, you know. And I'm not looking for speaking that. I'm just in, right, it out but there. But speaking in general terms, if, on, on civics, like, if something is passed that people don't like, sometimes the easiest way to get rid of that is not to try and reverse it, but to look at what the what the verbiage actually says in in the in the language, mm-hmm. and find things in that that are easily overturned or amended over time slowly. Yeah, you know, um, and that goes for really any legislation. So, um, yeah, the mountain lion thing was voted on by California voters. That that was not something that the department or the commission did. Um, you know, and, and again, going back to lack of really understanding history and the legislative um, civics process yeah. um, is a, it's a huge problem. And I think hopefully R3 will help address some of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to be launching, along with the rest of the R3 team that I work with at the department, um, an R3 website probably this fall. And on the website, we're hoping to build it over time, obviously. Um, there's not like some huge team working on this, so it's going to take some time. But hopefully there will be eventually some civic engagement information on there mm-hmm. to teach folks how to get involved in the commission, how to get involved in the legislative process, how to get involved at your local um, and county you know, fishing game things that are happening, and then also at the state yeah. level um, to try and help demystify the process Mm -hmm. Um, because the the politics of it are part of the equation you know that we have to address but r3 really is a broad spectrum of of issues to try to make it better for hunters and anglers right so there's the political side of things 
in the regulatory side of things. There's also the marketing and public perception side of things, which we've talked a bit about with social media and paying attention to what you're posting and understanding that things don't translate well to the public who don't participate yeah. in these things. Um, but there's also funding issues and making sure that there's, you know, grant money available for things like shooting sports and, and outreach programming um, for our three activities. Um, there's a science component, what we call human dimensions science, which is people's opinions and relationships with wildlife and wild places and understanding what people really think about these things. Yeah. Um, like we talked about, people are afraid to go outside. They're afraid of the dark. They're afraid to hike. They're afraid that something's going to come eat their face off. Um, so there's a human dimensions aspect of hunting and fishing as well that we have to understand what our audience is or what the potential audience for recruiting people are mm -hmm. and where we have to meet them where they are we can't expect them to meet us where we are mm -hmm. you know um for example i think what you were talking about about food and bringing things when you go out to friends houses you're meeting people where they are you're not expecting them to come on a hunt with you yeah you're meeting them where they are you're introducing them slowly um the idea of hunting and wild game then becomes more palatable. Yeah. Um, well, especially when you show up and cook somebody elk tacos and they're like, damn, I can do this myself. And it's and delicious. Come <laughs> home with three or 400 pounds of elk. Right, right, right. Exactly. Who doesn't love tacos? So the R3 effort from the organizational perspective, mm -hmm. um, it, so it includes a bunch of stakeholders, what we call stakeholders. And really all of us and everyone listening is a stakeholder. But um, for... Our three purposes currently in the process, a stakeholder is in the professional realm. So your NGOs and your clubs, your the media, outdoor media, uh, especially uh, industry folks, state agencies. We're working with other governments mm -hmm. and tribes. We're working with any any entity that has a stake in the continuing of hunting and fishing yeah. for the future. And then that trickles down to membership and the average hunter and angler and eventually will be an entire community effort to turn this thing around. It's not something that is just on state agencies. It's not something that's just for CDFW because CDFW cannot change this alone. You know, we have to take some responsibility as hunters and anglers to, to sort of turn this thing around. Um, and work together instead of against each other. Yeah. Um, you know. Well, and that's something that I think needs so much mending is right. the relationship between wardens and hunters. And yeah. I and I and I feel like not only from hunters is there a lot of discourse against wardens, but I also feel like from wardens to hunters, you know. And and I've been in so many different situations with wardens where some of them have been majority of them in the last five years have been extremely positive, but I've had some seriously negative interactions with wardens. And then like they'll start out really friendly and then it will get accusatory where they're accusing me of doing things that I'm not doing. Where for me, if someone's going to accuse me of something that I'm not doing, I will get immediately defensive, and and I will only go so far until someone's calling me a liar that I'm going to push back. The problem is, is that when I'm pushing back against the person who's calling me a liar, they're a you know a federal or whatever you know they have the most jurisdiction and and right to get away with. Not get away with anything, but I'm really tiptoeing around my words and trying to be very tactful. Have you talked to Alan about it? 
when I he have. was on the show? I have. Because he would be a good person. He's a he's a really great uh, warden to have this conversation with. Absolutely. I think. Um, Absolutely. So I I think what you're saying resonates with uh, the hunters. hunting community, especially. Yeah. Maybe even the fishing community, I don't know. Um, I've had mixed experiences with wardens. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that I work for the department, I understand those mixed experiences better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and at the end of the day, wardens are there to do their job. Um, well, and they've been trained, enforce. right? They've been trained certain ways to protect themselves mm-hmm. and, and to protect whomever is around absolutely and so i think i think there's a couple of things you know to keep in mind when being stalked by a warden number one they're not there to be our friends Mm -hmm. right they're there to enforce their job is to enforce um and to protect wild places and wildlife and make sure we're following the laws um that being said it doesn't mean that people anybody needs to be a dick yeah. Right, but that includes hunters. They don't need to be a dick either. Yeah, and so I well, think... and that's and that's where I'm talking about. Like, it's a two way street right. that needs to be fixed right. and mended on both sides. And every warden has a different preference of yeah. what they hope we do as hunters when when they're when they approach us. And I think that makes it difficult as well. Right, on contact when a warden contacts you know a hunter in the field, every warden has a different preference for what the hunter does and so it sort of makes it difficult for us to know what to do and so i've had this conversation with alan too where you know um some wardens prefer that you set your firearm down and walk away other wardens prefer that you just hold on to it um yeah but how do you know that like how do you know how you should should behave so i think you know as as hunters the best thing for us to do is to just ask just ask what would you like me to do right now what, what can I do to make you feel safe? Yeah. And if a warden feels safe, the chances are the interaction is going to go much smoother. Absolutely. You know, for anybody. I mean, yeah. think about any of us. If we're going into a situation in B-Zone and it's, it's, you know, harvest season and you stumble upon someone's grow, the first thing you're going to look for is your safety. First thing I'm going to do is turn around and walk away. <laughs> but again, that's because of safety, my, right? My buddy, too, my buddy just a week, a week and a half ago when A-Zone opened up... Uh, had a bunch of AK-47s pulled on him and his buddies. Sounds like great times. From guys in grow fields. Great. It's in a good time. On public land. Sounds awesome. Now, yeah. uh, but exactly. You're going you're gonna to turn around and walk away because of your safety, right? Yeah. So it's the same thing. I mean, we're all human. And I think that our safety is important. But for a warden who's putting their self, themselves in a line of fire, potentially, all day long at their job... Um, like any peace officer, safety is a huge concern. And so if we can work better to communicate instead of sort of freak out, oh, no, we're being stopped, right? You get that little anxiety rush of what's going to happen, you know. Um, start off on making good effort to be a big boy and talk with your words and say, what can I do right now to make you feel safe? Mm-hmm. What would you like me to do with my firearm? Um, and see how that goes. Yeah. I would imagine that the interaction at that point becomes much More smoother. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, so, well, yeah, it's, I mean, it's like when I get pulled over by highway patrol, because I definitely get pulled over by highway patrol from time to time. <laughs> I'm not me too. a flawless driver. Um, the first thing that I do is I leave both my hands on my steering wheel. I roll down every single window in the cab of my truck. 
I turn my truck off. I put my keys on the dashboard. Right. You know, and, and I give them the ability to see everything that's going on inside my vehicle. Because for me, the most important part when I'm having contact with law enforcement is that the law enforcement officer feels safe and feels comfortable not to take away from whatever the severity of the situation may be, but because I don't want anything bad to happen. I don't want them to think that maybe I'm drunk or on crank or, you know, doing some crazy shit that I shouldn't be doing. You know, and trying to cause a catastrophe. Right. Well, it should be the same thing with wardens. I mean, they're peace yeah. officers. And, Absolutely. And I think just because we're in the woods or on the water, the rules of, of society well, don't just go out the window. And for wardens on first contact, they don't know. Is this person operating an illegal grow? Are they out here poaching? Do they not have tags? Right. You know, are they on drugs? Are they drunk? Are, you know, like, right, they don't know. What, what is this person doing out here with wildlife? And until they can assess and figure out that, you never know what's going to happen. And that's why I feel like on contact, there are things that we as hunters can do to de-escalate the situation as well as I feel like wardens can do things to de-escalate situations right. as well. They can. But hunters can definitely do something to de-escalate it. We should be taking, again, you know, it's, it's going back to like trying to change the reputation of the hunting community as mm-hmm. hunters and being responsible for that. We can do the same thing with wardens, you know. Mm-hmm. They're, we're all just people. Maybe he had a bad day, mm-hmm. you know. Maybe she had a bad day. You know, and that, that doesn't excuse someone's behavior for not being super friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not there to be our friends, you know. Um, but at the at the same time, they don't need to be unnecessarily rude either. <laughs> but neither do we. Yeah. You know, and so so there is, you know, it's really hard to be an asshole to somebody who's being super nice to you. <laughs> so yeah. so be the super nice person. You yeah. know, just cooperate. Think about what you know what they have to do. They they're underpaid, overworked. You know, state employees. And and at the end of the day, the majority of wardens support hunting and fishing. They support wildlife conservation. They support the things that we are all doing. They just want to make sure that we're out there being safe and legal. And at least for me, I'm glad they're out there doing their job because I would hope any hunter would be pissed off at poachers for poaching. You know, and poachers make us look really bad because the public can't tell the difference between a hunter and a poacher. They don't know the difference and the news never portrays them as different things. So these hunters were caught in Yosemite killing multiple deer, blah, 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 blah. Right. And so those aren't hunters. Those are poachers. Change our reputation to the public. Um, so, you know, I am really thankful for what wardens do. And even though I have had mixed run-ins with wardens as well in my career in the outdoors, um, nothing's ever ended poorly, you mm. know. Um, there's people that maybe could have been a little friendlier, but again, they're not there to be our friends. They don't need to be friendly. They work extremely stressful jobs um, and put their life in danger every yeah. day. And and you know what? I don't do that. Yeah. I don't do that, so I don't know what it's like. Um, so I try to give them a little grace in in all of those yeah. things, you know? So how can people look up R3 and maybe become a part or a volunteer? What can the hunting community do to help the R3 movement be more successful? Right, so 
currently, so R3 is an effort or a movement. It's not a program. Um, and I think people get kind of confused. You get lots of emails of where can I sign up? I want to learn to hunt. Mm -hmm. I want to learn to fish. I want to mentor. I want to help and volunteer. Those are all really great responses, especially since I don't really ever get anything from people who oppose what we're doing yeah. right and so that's a huge improvement in itself um the article in san francisco chronicle in more liberal media out you know, outlets uh, yeah. have been positive like all of these things have been positive which is really great however it's not a program that somebody can sign up for um it's an effort it's a national and statewide campaign or effort movement to move hunting and fishing in the right direction so that we can see it in the future so the best way to get involved as the average hunter or angler, a couple things. The first thing is reach out to the organizations you're a member of. And if you're not a member of organizations, join one. Come on, give them your 50 bucks. Um, so reach out to organizations. Uh, every organization in the state of California is involved. So they are working you know, with, with us to improve their programming, to improve their mentorship, to improve their messaging, to improve funding to improve opportunities and the department is also doing that so our share hunt program um fishing passport fishing in the city all of the programs the department does we're all working together on this as equal stakeholders nobody's above it, anyone else nobody's in charge nobody's the boss it's all a level playing field of community of outdoor people working to improve the conditions so contact the organizations ask them how you can get involved see if they have a position for you to mentor somebody um, that's one way. The second way is we're our biggest, uh, army of people to change this, right? Yeah. Like I mentioned earlier, if we showed up, even if 1% of us showed up, we could change everything. Same, similarly, if 1% of us dedicated every year to mentoring one new person that is not in our family, <laughs> mm -hmm. in the outdoors, we could affect change so quickly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even if all of us, like there's 300,000 hunters in the state, if each of us took one person under our wing for a year, and I'm not talking taking somebody out one time, that doesn't work. It has to be constant, like an apprenticeship. You have to mentor somebody because when you get into this, it's very convoluted, you know. As an adult onset person, I had no idea what the hell I was doing. There's a gajillion names for different <laughs> things. There's a the regs are confusing. You don't know where to go. I hiked around with Bo for like months at a time, not yeah. knowing anything. Um, you know, you really need somebody to to show you the ropes. Um, not just how to hunt, but also the social aspect. Like our community is is not super welcoming from the outside at all. We all feel like we are. Like oh yeah, just come. Well, when you tell somebody to just come, getting somebody like me, right? I'm a five-foot-tall girl from San Diego being asked to just come to, to a meeting with a room full of a bunch of old guys yeah. as the only female. You know, it's kind of intimidating. Uh, I'm pretty outspoken, so it didn't bother me. But I imagine, <laughs> like, people who are a little more timid and shy, like, that's kind of scary, right? Yeah. And then especially if you come from a culture that is, a, you know, more urban you know, I come from a beach culture, you know, I did not come from a camouflage wearing, tobacco chewing, you know, cowboy wearing, Roxy. cowboy hat wearing, like, you know, I'd never been to a rodeo in my life. Like, I, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I didn't know anything about like rural or country lifestyle uh, when I started. And so the idea of walking into a giant room with a meeting in an organization you know nothing about is pretty intimidating. So 
you know, there's the social aspect that we have to be cognizant of that, and we need to teach people how to fit into our community in many ways. Um, even if we think we're welcoming, because I, I don't think we're not welcoming. I think we are a pretty welcoming group of people, mm-hmm. but there's a huge learning curve socially. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we talk in jargon. There's words that we use that nobody knows what any of them mean unless you do this thing. It's kind of like those pictures. They don't mean anything to anyone except death and smiles if there's no translator there. Well, we have to be the interpreters for new folks as well. We need to learn to catch these people better. Um, and each one of us can do that. It doesn't have to be with an organization. Um, so those are my two big suggestions. Um, I guess the third one is, you know, mind your P's and Q's in public. Pay attention to the image you're putting out there. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't want to mentor somebody, um, you know, or you don't have enough time to yourself to go hunt and fish, um, be cognizant of what message you're putting out into the public space because if it's not a positive one, you're making our job a lot harder to try to do this R3 thing. Um, you know, and social media is, this is my, this is my rant. I'm going to give you a, a quick rant. Social media is not a good platform. If you have something to say and something to bitch about, don't do it on social media because the whole world sees it. So while you may think that in your closed Facebook group, nobody sees it, people see it. People see it because those groups are huge, things get shared, then the rhetoric starts, and it's like it's, it's like a bunch of high school girls, you know, trying to, you know, play a prank on, on somebody that they don't like. Well, what ends up happening is, is we kill our own effort before it even starts, because everybody automatically has a negative opinion about everything, uh, and so there's no optimism, and that lack of optimism is killing us. It's literally killing us. Um, so if you are pissed off about something and you want to change it, do something about it. And Facebook doesn't change anything. If you put negative posts on your private Facebook groups or on CDFW's page or on anti-hunting pages even, that information is ammunition for opposition to use. So, you know, you may think that you feel good about ranting, but you can rant. Call me if you want to rant. How about that? Mm -hmm. I'd rather you rant to me than do it on social media. I will listen to your rant if you call me. Well, (laughs) what I like, and I find this more and more, is how many people want to complain about a lot of hunting stuff and nobody wants to do anything. Example, showing up to commission meetings or nobody wants to mentor any new hunters. You know, and there's, especially on social media, um, throughout the last how many ever years, there's so many people that are all about influencing new people to hunt and, you know, really pushing the the limit to show people how easily it can be done. And, and then it's like, cool, how come you're not a hunter's education instructor? How come you're not right. teaching classes? How come you're not mentoring people? How come you're not out there in the field doing things with people instead of just talking about it from a soapbox and social media? We're aging out. And that is really, to me, the biggest thing. And like, and sure, I can say that, and I'm a hunter's education instructor, and I've been a hunter's education instructor for the state for quite some time. But it really, it really bothers me when people talk about how different things need to happen and people need to rally and do things. But those same people that all stand on their fucking soapboxes don't do anything. Right. 
Right. And so they don't do anything. But not no, but they are doing something. Yeah. This is what they're doing. They're making everybody else's job who is actually trying to make change harder. Yeah. That's what they're doing. Yeah. They're not they're not doing anything. They're they're helping us dig our grave is what they're doing. And so I'm not saying that you have to agree with everything that's going on in the world of hunting and fishing, right? But don't make it more difficult for the rest of us who are showing up and who are doing the work and yeah. who are doing the mentoring and the teaching. You know, you don't have to get involved. Yeah. But for the love of God, like, don't make it worse. You know, I, I think at the end of the day, like, even though it seemed harmless to just write what you have to say, you know, on X zone, B zone, C zone, D zone <laughs> group on social media, um, you know, that's building a certain kind of morale mm-hmm. for hunters, right? And it's building rhetoric. And that rhetoric is much more difficult to to change uh, once people have it sort of solidified as a dogma for their life. Um, you don't have to agree with everything, you know? You, mm-hmm. you, you don't even have to like what's happening. But... If you're not willing to step up and get involved and show up and be engaged, shut up. Like, just shut up. Like, don't make it harder for everyone else who is. You know, and it makes me so angry. Like, it really makes me angry. Um, I started hunting in 2013, right? So I haven't been at this for very long. Since 2013, I have been civically engaged in the process. There has not been a moment that I have not been involved in trying to make sure that hunting and fishing is here for the future. And sometimes I feel like it's against my better judgment because I go on Facebook and I read all these comments (laughs) and I think, what the hell am I doing? I'm going to quote Joe Rogan on that. (laughs) Comments and and engagement, I sometimes I do it, but I can't. I can't do it. I got to stay out of it. And like I follow the D zone California group and I follow the X zone and I follow the, the blacktail group and all these different groups and I always get notifications of different topics and different things that are being discussed and I just keep my fucking mouth shut because I get so angry that I'm going to look like a bad example when I pop off. Right. I do the same thing. Uh, Now that I work for the department, I have to really be careful. Right. And I'm not, I don't have a great filter. Um, Although I'm learning, I'm learning. Um, But I I think... In your words, that's very millennial of me. It's very millennial of me. It is. Um, You know, I I, am learning. But at the end of the day, like, we have to do something different. We can't keep recreating the same failing wheel. Right. And that's what R3 is about, ultimately, is, is changing the way the wheel functions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if you want to be a grumpy old guy sitting in your house not doing a damn thing until yeah. you can get, you know, out to your duck blind or your deer stand or whatever, fine, be that person. But don't make the rest of us that person yeah. if we don't want to be that person, you know? Yeah. Um, I get it. People are disheartened. It's years and years of feeling like you're beat down. I get that. I understand that. Um but I have some hope that there is a newer generation of hunters that are participating now um, that still see the optimism and the hope for the future, right? Young mm-hmm. idealists call us. I don't know. But, but there are people who still believe that California can be a friendly place for hunters and anglers. Yeah. Um, and that is going to require some shifts on attitudes around hunting, right? Uh, and it may mean that trophy books and things go away. 
because it doesn't resonate so much with millennials. Um, it may mean that the focus becomes more on food, but why does that matter? I don't understand why that matters. It doesn't mean you can't participate. Why can't they both live together? Mm -hmm. You know, and it's not about pushing people away. R3 is not about replacing who's sitting at the table. It's about adding extra seats to the table so the table becomes fuller. Yeah, and more that, diverse. More diverse. And there, it may mean that every idea and political stance and ideology at the table don't all agree with each other. Mm -hmm. And at some point in the recent history of this country, that was okay. You know? Uh, and now for some reason, it's not okay. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a problem. The outdoors used to be for everybody. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, that it's, changed over it's the changed. last X years. It's changed. Yeah. Um, and so we need to change it back. We need to reclaim it because we're going to lose it if we don't. Yeah. So we're going to jump out of all of this stuff. We're going to transition a little bit. You are Jenny Archer. Archery is amazing. I love archery. Personally, for me, archery season is the best season. Um, I work with an archery pro shop, West Coast Archery in Petaluma, mm -hmm. California. Familiar. They're my favorite place. Hans takes care of everything. I can take my bow to him. He'll dial it in if I need to, if I'm having problems. He completely helps me out. He's helped me out for 10 years with any of my archery needs since their shop was... I think he used to go work his first job all day, and then he'd open the archery shop from like 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. And that was how we started his business. And... Uh, in my experience, I've always used a pro shop. So for you getting into archery, did you dive into a pro shop in Southern California? Do you use a pro shop? You've done it all yourself. So I have to be careful with this topic because I'm okay. representing the state. Absolutely. And so, I, you know, there's a separation between, you know, my sponsors and my, my sort of life as Jen the Archer and mm -hmm. my life as Jen Bennett at the statewide R3 coordinator. <laughs> so I wear, you know, a couple different hats and I'd be happy to chat on a different segment about some of these things. Yeah. Um, but just to answer your question quickly, I just didn't want us to get too far down that, no, that sure. questioning path. Absolutely. Um, just because of my role. So um, when I first started, I did not go directly to a pro shop. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, I did, but I didn't have any sort of like affiliation or yeah. dedication to one shop. Yeah, I'm not looking for um, affiliations I or anything like that. I had a horrible experience. experience. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I had a horrible experience. Yeah. Um, I went to one pro shop and uh, was just shopping around. I really didn't know anything about archery. I was it a big big box store or no, was it a no. little hole in the Every box place store? I've ever gone to purchase archery equipment in person has been local shops. Yeah. Um, I've... I don't know that I've ever purchased anything from a big box store. Yeah. Um, one, again, I, I'm, you know, into sustainability and local living. And so yeah. local economy is a big thing for me. And supporting local shops is a big Absolutely. thing. I, I hate that. Walmart. It's like the devil. I hate him. <laughs> um, so I went to a local shop um, and immediately was sort of, I felt like I was at a used car dealership. And I was... <laughs> talked down to very much um do you feel like, like i was an idiot like a woman or do you feel like know. you're new to the sport or it may have been a combination of both it may have been because the guy was having a bad day i have no idea yeah. what the i don't want to like you know guess on what the issue was but um it was not a good experience and it was you know i was being they were trying to sell me their flagship bull at the top line for as a brand new archer um well let me tell you as a new archer i'm not gonna walk in a store and spend two grand 
Like, I'm just not. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Like, who's going to do that? Well, that that's funny. So. For me, for a lot of my friends that get into it, I'm very much the type of person that, like, I, I don't buy once and cry once on a lot of stuff. But, like, for people that want to, like, my good friends that want to get into archery, I'm always, like, 2500 bucks, dude. If you want to get into archery, prepare to spend 2500 Eventually. Bucks. But not right off the bat. That's what I do. I tell them, if you, if you want to get into it, because all of my This buddies, is why nobody's coming into archery. You're scaring people. <laughs> no way. Actually, most of the people that come in are all people that listen to Joe Rogan, in my right. experience. Well. But, so, that's, I, what I, that's how I stage it. Is because, but for me... I didn't know what poundage I would end up at. Uh-huh. You know, I did not have these muscles built up. Yeah. I didn't know anything about archery, except that I wanted to shoot a pig with a bow. That's what I knew. That's all I knew. And so I went to a shop. I did not have a good experience. I walked out of that shop and did not purchase anything. And mm-hmm. then I walked into another shop. Um, and sort of, that the experience there was different. It was not positive right off the bat. It was sort of a weird competition right i'm in my late 20s uh was a weird competition between sales associates to try to talk to me but not actually help me with any of the questions i had Mm -hmm. um which was weird that's annoying it was annoying Uh, and it was because i was female (laughs) um and then when i you know finally um somebody who was not a 20 something year old uh, approached me and said, what can I help you with? I think he noticed that I was about to leave. Like, I was about to walk out. Because yeah. I was there for a very specific reason, and I could not get anyone to actually help me. Yeah. Um, they thought it was a joke. Honestly, they thought I was in there as a joke. Because I was wearing a summer dress and flip-flops, and, or my sandals. My hair was in braids, you know, typical San Diego girl. Um, and I looked out of place. Yeah. Um, but I really wanted to do this, and so I stuck with it, you know? And I, I was pretty adamant. But if I wouldn't have had that personality, we easily could have lost another archer that way, mm-hmm. you know, a potential archer. So this older guy, I mean, he was not older, older than me, but not older, um, walked up to me and asked me what, I, what he could help me with. And at that point, I was so annoyed that I didn't even know what to respond. So I just gave him some very off-the-cuff response with, I want to kill a pig with a bow. What the hell do I need to buy? And that was it. <laughs> And he just, like, stared at me uh, and then laughed. And then I laughed. He's like, rough day? And I was like, no, rough shopping experience. You know, like, why can't I get anybody to help me? This is the second shop I've been to. Nobody wants to take me seriously. And all I'm trying to do is kill a pig with a bow. And then, of course, the other guys are like, oh, does this pig have a name? Is it a specific pig? You know, so I was I was just annoyed and I was fed up. And I almost walked out again. Yeah. But... Uh, Long story short, this guy... Super uh, professional. Oh, it it made me so mad. I was just done. Um, Looking back, it was kind of funny. Like, I can laugh about it now. But in the moment, I was really pissed off. Um, And so this person, the sales associate, ended up actually taking me under his wing. And he's the person who introduced me really into archery um, and helped me get my start i mean he and he he happened to have been a sponsored archer which was helpful mm-hmm. so i learned about sponsorship i learned about a lot of things through him really quickly. Um, but he also met with me at our local archery range and mm-hmm. taught me how to shoot a bow for the first time um i did not have any formal lessons um mm-hmm. yeah he just became a friend actually he's the person who took me on my first hunt as well to hunt a pig without a name mm-hmm. so that Wilbur. was fun. yeah wilbur yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's how I got my start. Um, but I never really used a shop for anything, uh, unless I was short on time or something and I was in a, you know, out hunting somewhere and I needed to stop in cause spring yeah. broke or something. But, um, yeah, we do pretty much everything 
ourselves for the most part. Yeah. Um, I've learned along the way. Um, that's funny. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, that's a gripe that I've heard from a lot of women that go into archery pro shops. I mean, just that are trying to get into hunting in general, not specific to archery, but it's very difficult for females to get in because you've got a bunch of leg humping ass dudes. Right. Well, and the other thing that pisses me off when I, and this is why I stopped going to shops. So I I have gone to several shops in the very beginning, but I don't go to really shops at all, at all anymore. I don't need to anymore. But Mm -hmm. uh, in the very beginning, I would walk in, mind you, I've been doing archery for, at that point, a few months. I knew what I was doing for the most part. I understood what I wanted to happen to my bow. Um, I would go in and, you know, you set your bow down on on the shop carpet or whatever on the counter. And uh, immediately I noticed that a lot of bow techs will pick up a female's bow and start messing with it without ever asking. What's up? What's up? Yeah. Oh, well, this is off and this is off. Well, maybe I like it like that. Maybe that's my setting. Maybe I have this set up because I like these things. You know, don't assume that because something doesn't look right to you, that it's not right. Mm-hmm. Or the other thing is, is half the time I think that they're bullshitting. There's nothing wrong. They mm-hmm. just are giving, you know, they want to look cool. They want to look like, you know, the man in the room or yeah. whatever. Um, look, you would never touch someone else's bow. You would never touch a dude's bow without asking. Yeah. You wouldn't. It's common courtesy. Yeah. So don't do it to females. Yeah. So you're getting really fired up. Right oh, it now, makes me so mad. Which I'm actually really excited for <laughs> because it's given me a really good thought on our Dead Eye question. So Dead Eye Outfitters is a company that we work with, and uh, you know they help with the podcast, they help our funding, and and everything like that. Um, they're an outfitter apparel brand. You don't actually do outfitted or guided hunts. You know, flat brim hats. Sometimes people learn that you can actually bend a flat bill, so it's not a flat <laughs> bill anymore. A lot of people don't understand the concept, but it's a possibility. Right. It, it, it really happens. Uh, <laughs> they have socks. You know, I hope they come out with shorts soon. They have a lot of great clothing for, like, outside of hunting, which is what I really like about I won them. one of their Facebook contests once. Oh, did you We really? have some of their stuff. Oh, nice. Yeah. Let me know if you want more of their stuff. <laughs> cool. I'll take care of you um i gifted it all to my husband because it was not in my size okay he's got some stuff good good (laughs) um so that being said something that i've loved about this entire conversation you've referenced hunters and only hunters you've not referenced huntresses i appreciate that because in my opinion men and women are all hunters and Mm -hmm. there is no hunter huntress and whatever so our dead eye minute is going to be i would love to know if you can go into it on this podcast without it being a different podcast um what your opinion of social media huntress is and the women that might not be killing anything but they're taking cute pictures and sticking their ass out and what kind of image you feel like that's doing for women in the sport right yeah i can we can have this conversation totally cool yeah get it um so if first off if anyone male or female is taking pictures and not actually hunting they're not hunters so they also aren't huntresses they're just 
models, I guess. I don't know what they are. Um, apparel models. Apparel models, right. Because at the so. end of the day, all of the clothing in the hunting industry, camo or not, is fucking apparel. Right. It's all apparel. And you all don't actually need apparel. any of it to hunt. Yes. So, and we've not, we've used it for a shorter amount of time than we've not used it hunting in, yeah. in the history of humans. Um, so anyway, so that's my first thought is that they're just not hunters. Like if you're not hunting, you're not a hunter. Um, I, my second thought is, is we have to be also kind of careful because if pictures show that they're not hunting, we have to think about what that means. Is it that they're not hunting or they're not being successful? Because I would call somebody who is trying to hunt, but not successful, a hunter. Absolutely. Um, you know, and then the third thought that comes to mind is, are they taking photographs like this to get attention uh, for just the sheer sake of attention? Are they being paid by a company? Because if they are being paid, then we need to talk to our industry, not them. Because who's not going to take an advantage of a deal that pays them to take pictures? I mean, social media influencing is huge. It's a huge industry. People make a ton of money at it. So if we don't like that, we need to put that back on industry, not on the person in the picture. Um, if they're taking pictures just for attention because they need that validity in their, in their life, life. <laughs> then, you know, uh, that's an, that's to each their own, I guess. Um, the differentiation between hunter and huntress, me personally, I prefer hunter. Um, I don't necessarily have a negative opinion of people who prefer huntress. Um, I don't know why they can't both live in the same space together. Um, what I will say is that women consistently want to be treated as an equal hunting partner in the field. Maybe when, when I'm in camo, I want to be your partner. When I'm not in camo, you can open the door for me. Like, I'm okay with chivalry still. Yeah. Like, I'm okay with the fact that I'm wearing a dress and heels and we're going out and, and all of those things are great. Like, I don't have some weird thing about I'll open my own door. Um, every woman is different, though. And I also feel fine with women who are not all for that. That being said, I do think that this um, putting women in their own category in the outdoors sometimes does, it's a, a bit disenfranchising for a couple of reasons. So I have always have a big rant on these women's events, like women's only events. I think they're great for certain demographics of women. But at the end of the day, we have to hunt with men. We have to be in the field with men. We have to learn to pee and to check with men right? In waiters, because the bathroom is five miles away. Um, men don't get in trouble for that. Women do. So the, the, the things around sexism and hunting to me, is not about hunter or huntress. It's not about whether or not you wear pink and makeup in the woods or, you know, yoga pants in camp. Like I could care less about any of that. If they support hunting, why not support them? That's it. You know, and if they want to be called huntresses, fine, call them huntresses. I, I, I don't know why we have to be so harsh on women specifically around the things that we do with our bodies or what we wear, what we call each other. Um, and as a community, we do the same thing. I'm a public land hunter. Well, I'm only a private land hunter. Oh, I'm waterfowl. I don't care about the deer hunters. You know, all of this back and forth and, and pointing fingers and tearing each other down is, is not useful. <laughs> right, it's not useful. And so... You know, whether or not it's a TNA photo of some chick, you know, with whatever product, um, I, if it's supporting the outdoors, it's supporting the outdoors. 
That being said, I do think that those pictures make it more difficult for women to be taken seriously in the outdoors as an industry. Um, I also think that companies are kind of dumb because we know for a fact that sex doesn't actually sell anything unless you're in the adult industry. (laughs) So you're wasting your money. Um, But, you know, at the end of the day... I don't know if I have a super strong opinion of it because like any industry it exists. Hunting is not, the hunting industry is not unique in this, you know, it, it exists in every industry and in every marketing um, field pretty much when you're trying to sell products. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I mean, I think that the hard part is for me is, is that when we are training women to be new hunters, let me just share a story. This all, this should better explain what I'm trying to get at. A long time ago, I was asked to do a workshop at a big box store. I got a phone call. Jen, will you come and do our hunter series for spring, blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, I'd, be, I'd, I'd love to. Uh, what's the topic? And they said, women in hunting. And I said, okay, but what's the topic? And they said, women, well, we just want you to talk to women about what they need to hunt. And I said, so it's just a beginning hunting seminar. Well, no, it's for women. Like, we need you to talk to women about what they need. Well, men and women need the exact same thing to start hunting. What do you mean? What do you want me to talk to them about? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and they kept on of like, well, whatever the needs are of women. I still don't understand. Like, what is different between... The only thing different about men and women learning to hunt is how we pee in the field. What else is different? I don't know what, how, what skill set is different. I still don't have an answer for that. Like, I don't know what the skill set difference is. So, so if we want to be taken seriously, we have to take ourselves seriously, but we also have to stop segregating ourselves and and pretending like we need something special. We don't need anything special. If you want to hunt, you learn to hunt. That's it. You learn to hunt. Now I understand, you know, these women's events, uh, they're super successful, by the way, they almost always sell out. Um, and women love doing them. And I don't think there's any problems with women having camaraderie and, you know, girls camp, ladies camp, ladies night out. All of these things are great for the social aspect and camaraderie and supporting people. And it seems maybe that people feel less intimidated uh, to be in those spaces to learn new skills. Um, And so I think that they do serve a purpose, and Mm -hmm. I think some people really love them. For me personally, I feel like they don't always prepare us as women to know what we're going to experience when the fluff around us goes away. When that bubble is popped, what's going to happen when you go to the refuge as a female by yourself or with your friend who's also a female and you sit in the sweat line, you get a spot, you walk out to that spot, and then all of a sudden some group of guys is sitting 20 yards from you, skyscraping over you, making comments all day long. Those women's events don't prepare us for, for what to do in those situations. The reality. It's the reality of hunting, really. It's, yeah. it's the experience of the female hunter. And I think we need to do a better job of not only preparing our women on how to handle those situations, but intervening. We need men to intervene with other men when they behave like that. We need them to be our allies. to let Because if we say something, we're complaining. We're just PMSing. We're this, we're that. You know, and it's easy to sort of discredit it. But when another man intervenes with another man, mm-hmm. those messages change usually. Yeah. Um, 
and those are the issues in sexism in the industry that, that in the community that we need to address it's not what we call ourselves or what we wear or what makeup we have or what pictures we have um, at the end of the day if we want to be taken seriously then we need to stop pretending that we need something special to learn to hunt mm-hmm. a bathroom would be nice at a refuge that's not five miles away <laughs> but otherwise <laughs> because we're going to be the ones that get the indecent exposure ticket not a guy yeah so you know there's there's those types of problems as well yeah um getting somebody a female and a set of waiters you know five miles away from a check station where there's a porta potty and there's nowhere else to go you drop trial all of a sudden people have a problem with it yeah so um guys don't have that problem so much right on well how can people look you up um jen the archer on any social media basically um you can find me you can find me with the department um jennifer.benedettwildlife.ca.gov um i'm on the state website as well cdfw website under r3 you find me i'm pretty easy to find actually I think. all right yeah i think i'm pretty easy so i well, can call you <laughs> right. and ask right so, yeah and then do you have any concluding thoughts before we close out the podcast i guess I wasn't trying to just bitch at everybody. I really wasn't. Like, I am passionate. I don't feel like you did at all. I'm very passionate, and I I think that we... You're driven. I am, and and I'm proud of that about myself. And I may not be the most poised person with the best filter, um, but I do feel like we have the ability as a community to change where we are. But people have to stop being lazy lazy and complacent. Mm -hmm. They have to stop. Otherwise, we already have one foot in the grave. If you want to see the other one go, keep doing what you're doing, right? (laughs) Do nothing. I mean, that's exactly what's happening. And there's a lot of people out there that are doing something. There's a lot of us. I mean, our group of our three folks who are working in this state right now is about 250 people representing all sorts of organizations and clubs. It's a lot of people um, that have the potential to have a lot of velocity forward to make change. But as long as the community is on social media bantering back and forth about how horrible everything is, the work we do is not going to matter at the end of the day. When the legislature or the decision makers or the commission or, you know, whoever um, looks to make a decision, if we try to push something forward and they go back and say, well, look, the community doesn't even care about this. They're pissed off about it. Then we fail. Don't make us fail. Thanks for tuning in to the show, folks. If you'd like to check us out online, our website is www.theflipflopguide.co. You can find out all the information you need to have your own flip-flop in your own backyard. We encourage this, and we'd love to see this happening in every backyard across America. You can purchase our sauces that have been cranking out flip-flops from my grandfather since the 1960s. If you had trouble filling your tags this year, we also have available on our website Maui Nui Axis Deer Legs. They're 100% USDA approved and ready for your consumption. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram at the Flip Flop Guy. We hope you have a great day. Thanks for tuning in and don't forget to smash that subscribe button.